Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you've gathered us in this place at this time to hear from you, to, uh, to eat of the bread that you've provided this morning. We pray, Father, once again that you would prepare our hearts to receive, that we would be dependent upon you for our understanding of you, our understanding of us and what you've done for us in Christ. Make us willing, we pray, to uh, be faithful to what you've called us to do, which is to know you and the one you sent, Jesus Christ, and to proclaim him and make much of him in the world, both in word and in deed, how we treat each other, how we treat others on the outside, um, that we may be reflections, little reflections of Jesus wherever we are. And we thank you for these things in his name. Amen. We are moving forward in Exodus 32, walking through what is probably the defining uh, sin of Israel in the Old Testament. This one is hung around their necks for a long, long time. What happened last time? Just by way of review. The golden calf. Yeah. What, what, what was involved with that? Moses delayed. Moses delayed. And how did they take that? They assumed the worst. Immediately. They assumed the worst in, that, in what way? He's not coming back. He's not coming back, right? And, 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 and how did they respond to the thought, the mere hint that he wasn't coming back? They made a new leader and his brother, sort of, right? They, well, I was saying the golden calf. Oh, the golden calf. Well, yeah. Didn't they say they wanted to make this golden calf to lead us? To lead us out, yeah. Yeah. They tried to worship Yahweh right. with the golden calf at the same time. They wanted so, to have them combined into this idol that they could worship and see and follow. They wanted, they wanted something they could, they could see that would be visual, they could, they could dance around it and all this. So they, they had a golden calf that they made out of the golden ears, the earrings. We talked about the significance of that last week. Um, then then uh, their, their attitude toward Moses during all this. Do you remember what was going on there? It was hostile. They were offended. This Moses, we talked about the, the derision that was in their voice from Yusuf. Welcome. Glad you're here. We don't, we're not doing the wave anymore, are we? we we're going to do that, I think. Okay. Uh, the derision. They felt jilted. They felt that they had been shamed by Moses leaving. And they took it in their own hands. Where were they at this time in relationship to the mountain? They're at the base of the mountain, bottom of the mountain. Where's Moses? He's at the top in the presence of God, right? All right, let's look at uh, starting verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who you brought up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent, did he bring, out, bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent 
from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. What was the first thing the people said to Aaron? Do you remember? Up. They commanded Aaron, up. Get up, old man. Up. What's the first thing God says to Moses? Go down. Watch as we work through this, the parallels between the two scenarios. I found it very interesting. Notice the picture of distance between God and the people. He's giving Moses a blueprint for how he's going to dwell among them. I will be their God, they will be my people. He's building a tabernacle that he will reside in their midst, not far away up on the mountain where they're at the base, but in their midst. That's the plan. And even now, God is condescending to them with Moses from the mountain to, to enter into this covenant, to finalize this covenant. The law that he's given, he's, he's bringing it to them. And Moses is at the point of coming down with the tablets of the law, but before he could do it, the people are breaking the very law he was bringing down. God says to Moses, they have corrupted themselves. That word uh, for corrupted in the Hebrew uh, has several meanings. Um, the primary definition of the verb is to destroy, to annihilate, or to ruin. The secondary definition there is what the ESV uses to they have corrupted themselves. It kind of flows a little better, but, the, but the, the primary definition is to ruin. Basically, God is saying to Moses, they've ruined it. They've ruined it. We haven't even gotten off the mountain and already they've ruined it. In worshiping this idol, they had shattered the very foundation of the covenant defined in the first two commandments. It's another God, it's an engraved image. And they've ruined it. They feared that Moses had shamed them by leaving them, and they were angry. And in their anger, in their misunderstanding and distrust of the nature of God, they shame God by leaving Him. Do you see the parallel here? It's been 40 days with no word in the wilderness. And God says, they've turned aside quickly. Now, I'm not eternal. So 40 days is probably a blink. Less than a blink, I guess. It seems like a long time to me, 40 days. I mean, that's not quickly. Is it? Is it? Even, even a lifespan for us, 40 days is quick compared to 70 years. As, as, a, as opposed to 70 years, right? Oh, it seems forever. It really, a boiling pot can take forever in our, in our understanding of time. Sometimes they do. Is this a little harsh? They've turned aside quickly for 40 days. There it is. That's exactly right. How long did they groan under the slavery of Egypt? 400 years. And they can't be patient for 40 days. Man, what a fickle people. Well, I don't know. Another, another way to look at it is 440 years and 40 days. Because they have a history of waiting. It's kind of already. You think they'd learn by now? Well, it's a. They reached the limit. They hit the boiling point of waiting. I think it, it, Moses 
had said, I'm going to be on the mountain for 40 days, I, I mean, I, I think... He may not know. He didn't know. Mm. But when we're reading this, we're going, oh, well, it's just 40 days. But then <clears> there, <throat> was, there was... He didn't know, and they didn't know how mm. long he was going to be away. And so there was, from their perspective, this this tension of anxiety of we don't know what's next, and now this person... You set him up for failure? We do the same thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. I think that's what I struggled with last week. Is that that's why I asked a couple of questions. You know, where are they? They're at the base. How many people? You said millions. Mm. It's, so it's a bunch of people. Millions of people mm. with zero plan for 40 days. A general plan. It's a mob. <laughs> they know that they're going to the promised land eventually. Now, this could be, I know that I'm sinful and I have my own ways. Like, obviously, I like a plan. Right. So, obviously, I would be antsy, but of course, I did not spend, you know, the rest of my life in slavery, like someone said over there. Yeah. So, obviously, you think, well, they'd probably be grateful and just along for the ride. You're breathing free air. Right. But you're not (laughs) going anywhere. I don't see it. Yeah. But I think that, and they probably see, don't they see stuff going on on the mountain? Like, or was that just the I, commandments that I saw? That it's my understanding there's still smoke and lightning and stuff going on. But they don't know if Moses is still up there. They don't know if he got struck by it. <laughs> there, may be, there may be that that fear too. Is this a setup for failure? I think it's a setup for failure. Okay. <laughs> In which they did fail, yeah. Moses and the people. Yeah. You're going to say something? Just thinking, as humans, it's really easy when things start to go our way to move into a sense of entitlement. Ah. Uh. Because things aren't terrible anymore for them. You know, they're not in slavery, and it's starting to be better, and they're starting to make steps in progress that all of a sudden it's like, all right, let's do this. I'm not going to wait. Let's go. I'm entitled I'm to entitled. this land. And so I can see how 40 days you could quickly sort of slip into it. In fact, I'm so entitled, I'm going to go ahead and take control of this and go ahead and take what's mine. Yeah. I'm, going to, I'm going to set up my own thing that I know I can control and I can, yeah. Well, they're in for the long haul in the manna, I'm just saying. This is the beginning of the, beginning of the manna. Where's the milk? Where's the honey? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like the plan. Like there was no. Money, they just there but here he is, God having brought them out with a powerful hand, these magnificent signs, these magnificent <coughs> plagues, this incredible stuff. After 400 years of being enslaved, 40 days. Granted, the the there's the testing. Granted, there's a little bit of, ah, this is, we've been here for a while, getting a little thin on the, on the gazelles, you know, on the, for us to hunt. I think that's the thing I was probably missing with the sign, like the miraculous, mm-hmm. holy cow, pillar of fire. Yeah, holy cow. No pun intended. All right. So, they really, I mean, if you come down to it in God's economy, they really had no basis to be angry. They're free. He's providing for them. They're together. He's taking them to himself as his inheritance, he says, which he will cherish and, and, and grow and protect and sh- shower with favor. They have no basis to be angry with God unless they don't know him and they don't trust him and they doubt the character he's already revealed. The the. the the, pre- the presupposition becomes he's out to get us or shame us, right? If they knew him, they knew his character, if they trusted what they had seen already, this wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have gone that way. They had no right or basis to be angry. He had every right and ground to be angry. And he is. How do we know that? What, in what way? What's the language he uses? How does he describe the people? Your people. Your people. But that almost seems like 
seems like a testing of Moses to see if if he's gonna be arrogant about being their leader. I mean, it, it, it almost seems like it could be a where where's your heart, Moses? Maybe. Too. Maybe. And but, I and but, I think but that. But there is a distancing. These aren't my people anymore. <laughs> I think there is that, and we'll see that later on. I think you're right. But the your people thing, what has he been saying this whole time? My people. My people. He calls them stiff necked people. Your people. Go, That's your son. <laughs> <laughs> that was recent, wasn't it? Verse 11. Yeah. We'll get there in just a second. You're right. Your, your people. And then what does he say? You brought out of Egypt. You brought out of Egypt. He's echoing the language of the people, isn't he? What they've said. This Moses who brought us out. So is this holy sarcasm? I think, I think it is. I think it is. Um, your people. He addressed them as my people, whom you brought up from Egypt. He's distancing, distancing himself from Israel. And we see this whole parallel thing. And here's the kicker to me on God's assessment of the situation. Look at verse 9. What happened when Aaron saw the people at that time that they came to him? And how they responded to this golden calf? What, what did he do? He went with it. He built an altar to it. Right? He saw the people, and here in verse 9, God sees the people. And what's his assessment? What does he do? I have seen this people. They are a stiff-necked people. What does that mean? Now I had a I had a situation when I was younger. I I, I and Tammy told some of you guys this, where I I, I cut my finger on a on a um, couch. There was a rusty nail on the couch thing, and and I we had this. Um, it was kind of the paper version of WebMD at the time in our in our in our house called a, called a Merck manual, and I and I read through it, symptoms for what could happen if you prick your finger on a rusty nail, and 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 apparently tetanus is one of those things. And then they had pictures of what happens with tetanus, and just like, <laughs> and 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 I started thinking that over and over. And I'm like, gosh, I'm feeling tired. Started getting this thing happening. I had this kind of feeling in my jaw all the time. And damn it, I think I'm getting loud, John. Shut up, Kevin. No, you're not. It's just a, I feel it. I feel, ah, ah, and just and this whole thing is stiff-necked. Is that what he's talking about? This is a lockjawed people. What is he talking about? Stiff-necked. People that know best. They think they know best. These are obstinate people. The NASB says obstinate. Stiff-necked. This actually is an agricultural based, agriculturally based term referring to a farm animal that will not do what you want it to do. Like a goat. <laughs> or in this situation, a cow. You become what you worship. Now what he's saying? You become what you worship. What language did they use to describe Moses? This Moses, doesn't God use the same language with them? This people, the derision that he has, distancing himself. Is he angry? You better believe it. You better believe it. God applies the same disdain they had for Moses in his assessment of them. And then he goes one step further. Now, if you're Moses, how do you respond to this? What does he offer Moses? What does he offer him? A new patriarch. Brand new, you'll be my new Abraham. 
I'll start with you. You're a decent chap. What's the implication there? This new nation that I'm going to form from you will not have any of the people the, who are playing at the base of the mountain. What does that mean? It's going to wipe them out. To some extent. Well, that, that generation. He's talking about cutting them completely off. But you're right. And, and we'll get to that in a minute. You're right. He's, gonna, he's talking about opening up the ground and swallowing everybody at the base of the mountain. So there is no Israel. It will be the, the Mohazites. I don't know what you call them. I, the Mosinians. I don't know how that would go. But he's talking about starting with Moses and moving forward. The motions. Okay, well. And so if you're traveling through the land, I'm going through the motions. Is that? Okay. Um, so you have this huge pronouncement of, of condemnation and what they deserve under God's righteous judgment and a promise to Moses that he's going to make him a new patriarch. How does Moses respond to this incredible, oh, this is a chance of a lifetime. You can really make a name for yourself as being the patriarch of an entire people that God's going to bless, and, and, and you could be recorded in a book for that. What, what does Moses do in response? He appeals. What? He pleads the people. Some translations say he entreats the Lord. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's an intercessory intervention. He's being a priest. He's being an intercessory. He's being a mediator of the covenant. And he uses the he kind of flip flops the language that God used above and says, "Your people who you have brought up." What? And that's good. That's the first argument he makes. He makes three arguments in response to God's condemnation. He says, um, well, what would you say? You're hearing this. You're up on the mountain. You've been with God, which is kind of a cool thing, I would think. Uh, and you're up on the mountain, and you're hearing that while you're experiencing the holiness and majesty and wonder and good favor of God for His people on their behalf, the people that you're representing before God are, are rebelling against you in the most obviously breaching, covenant-breaching way. What do you say in response? I'll tell you what I'd say. Get them. Right? Isn't that where we go? Get them. What does he say? They've already turned on Moses several times. Yeah. To say, I'm sick of them too. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be the natural response? Yeah. I, all your family, everybody you know it includes you know. Aaron and Miriam, doesn't it? What would you say? Yeah. Do you think that he's he's wrestling with the promises that God has made, meaning I have established, and then? Now, oh my God, it's just going to wipe those establishments. That's where he goes, isn't it? It's exactly where he goes. What are the three arguments that, Mo that Moses makes to God at intercession? They're your people, right? We'll start with that one. They're your people. You chose them. You delivered them out of Egypt. Remember your work. Remember your choice of them. I don't, I don't think he was indicting God. You chose them. I don't think he was doing that. I'm saying, these are the people you chose to put your favor on. This is your work. This is your doing. Don't stop now. Yeah. Isn't that always the best prayers is the ones that are repeating back to God when he's original to you? I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. 
He's saying, you chose them. He's saying, think about what the Egyptians will say. What does that mean? What's the big deal there? Who cares? What was the whole point of the Exodus? It's, it's to let the Egyptians know that God is God. He said it how many times? A jillion that we saw every week as we were going through the plagues. Then they will know that I am the Lord. What kind of, how does that reveal who you are? They're not going to care about the why you wipe them out at the base of the mountain. They're just going to know what, and they're going to spend it however they want, and it's going to be a reflection on your character that is not who you are. You're going to cause them to lie about you. Your name is going to be dragged through the mud as a God who is whimsical, who is capricious, who is vindictive. Is that who you are? Is that who you want the Egyptians to know after you have done all this work in Egypt? That's, yeah. Yeah, and yet we're called to do it. Yeah, we're all high priests. Yeah. This is why I think it's a test for Moses, because God doesn't need to be reminded, right? And He doesn't, you know, He doesn't change His mind. Right. His plans are perfect. Right. So. Yet the text is very odd in how it portrays this. Yes. Right. Which is his third point. Yeah. Remember the promise. So he would be wanting something that would, in a way, prove God unfaithful to his promise. So he can't, he can't be okay with it. And he probably knows he's got to know he's being tested. What does he say first about the promise that you swore how? By your own self. By your own self. <clears throat> your nature. Your character is at issue here. You swore by your own self. Who cannot lie. There's nothing higher than your own self. That's how you've sworn. Is this a good picture of how the Trinity works? Yes. Maybe another time. But yes. Um, and then he's arguing. These three points that he's arguing, what is he not saying? Oh, if you just got to know them. They're really decent people. Uh, if, if, you know, it's tough being a slave. You have all these, you know, conditioned attitudes toward things. And you've got to excuse what they do because they've been conditioned to do that way. And maybe a few generations down, if we just supply what they need for a while, they'll, they'll get out of that. He didn't bring them up at all. Yeah, go ahead. He didn't bring them up at all. What were you going to say? Uh, Moses has so much faith. Yeah. It's really amazing because God is actually taking into consideration what Moses has to say. He's, he is calling for a response from Moses. And Moses, all of his arguments are based on who God is. Um, and Moses, it says, And Moses uh, implored of the Lord his God. He knows God. He knows his character. He knows that this is not consistent. What, what God is threatening to do, wipe them out, is going to show God not to be consistent with who he says yeah, he it's is. Like a check in his spirit. It's like, this doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like God I know. No, yeah. Like what you're yeah. Yeah, very good. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. Or is he? And or is it a question? Yeah. Or is it that test? Is it that, is it that question? I, I think that's a good point. I think it's a good point and, and you're anticipating, so that's great. No, that's good. No, that's exactly where I'm going next. That's excellent. Instead of uh, instead of 
saying, hey, these are good people, get to know, get to know me, get to know them. Uh, he is pointing to the character of God. He pleads for God's mercy on the basis of God's character and promises. Incidentally, this, this whole uh, intercessory prayer for the, for the whole nation of people, this is a unique thing in all of the ancient Near East. There is no other ancient writing uh, from, that, from that time period, no other, or that I'm aware of, from any other culture or any other writing or any other whatever, where someone is praying and interceding to a deity on the behalf of the whole nation. This is unique. You just don't see it anywhere else. It's, it's, it's unique. And then we get to verse 14. And, and I, what do we have here? Is God changing his mind? Does God change his mind? We've already discussed some of that already. Relenting here, relented, can also mean had compassion. But it doesn't get us beyond the fact that in having compassion, he changed his mind. Or at least it appears that way. But it's about the, the change that happens... The difference between, I'm going to wipe them all out, start with you, and he relented from doing the thing he said he was going to do. The difference is based upon a motive of compassion. Yes, we'll start. We'll work back. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just thinking of the, the story of Jonah and Nineveh. And, mm-hmm. and, and in that case, God relented also. It, it says he relented mm-hmm. from destroying them. But they were repentant. Mm-hmm. And in this case, he has compassion, and they haven't repented. They're still dead in their sin. I mean, they're still active in their sin. They're playing at the base of the mountain. Yeah. And yeah. Yep. Yep. And yet he has compassion. Yep. If you think about it, if, if God wiped everyone at the base of the mountain and started again with Moses, he wouldn't actually be breaking any covenant with nope. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nope. Because Abraham, I mean, Moses is from that line. He still isn't breaking any covenant. Absolutely consistent with the promise. Exactly. Yep. So I just read the story of Noah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Did it have those real weird rock creatures? No weird rock creatures? No. Okay, good. Uh, I didn't think so. Not the movie. All right, good. Well, he just said, I won't destroy my people again. He won't destroy the earth again. Wiping out the people of the base of the mountain doesn't and mean he's going to destroy the whole Moses, earth. Moses, I guess he wouldn't be destroying I mean, his I people. I thought he said I will not destroy my, I won't wipe <laughs> out my people this way. Maybe he said He will not wipe out the earth with a flood again. Okay. He will wipe out the earth, and we learn in Peter that it's through fervent heat, which is why I think global warming is a good thing. Wasn't Noah before Abraham? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say. Wasn't Noah before Abraham? <laughs> yes, he was. Yes, he was. So there was no my people in, with right. Noah's. And Noah's, but it was. But he's talking about the earth. Okay. He's talking about the earth. But yes. Um, where were we? Ah, yes. God changing his mind. Or not. Um, you have in Psalm 106:23, psalmist writes. Therefore, he said he talking about this event. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. It's not based on their repentance. It's not based on, on, uh, on, uh, on any kind of action by the people. It's based on Moses standing in the breach for them and setting aside this great offer that God made to him to start with him. And humbly petitioning God based on his character, who he is, the promises he's made, the humility of... He was called the meekest man on the earth later on. Where is that at? That's in Deuteronomy, I believe, whenever he... Uh, at the passing of his death. Maybe in Joshua. Deuteronomy... In Deuteronomy, first of Joshua, I can't remember exactly, but it was an editorial edition. Not Moses... Oh, by the way, on the meekest... That, that was part of them compiling it. Some of the, some of the editing happened that, okay. that they commented on. Some people believe it was Joshua that wrote that as, as after Moses' death. This is an example of that. To get this great offer and, and, and to plead with God, don't destroy them. Yes, they're stiff-necked. I know them. You know them. There's no doubt who they are. But don't do it because of who you are. And God relents 
And we have a problem. Because 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. What's going on here? And I think Colby's anticipating when God says, Let me alone, that I may show my wrath and my justice and redeem my name from this stiff-necked, bull-headed people The let me alone, I, in my view, I think you have in that phrase in verse 10 the reason we have verse 14. God knows Moses. He knows he's not going to let him alone. He knows the heart that he has for this people to pastor them, to intercede for them, to be a mediator for them. And he says, let me alone and then relents, not because he changes his mind. He relents because mercy is consistent with his character and his nature. He relents because it is his nature to show mercy to the broken and contrite heart. Not that of the people, but of Moses. Right? His response is based upon a very, it's a very predictable response. We see it with Nineveh. Jonah didn't go in there saying, oh, repent, and God will forgive you. He didn't even say it. He wanted God to rain down fire on Nineveh. He hated those people. He went with a message, not of the gospel, but of judgment, and then got some popcorn, sat under a vine, and waited for the show. But instead, the people repented, and God relented. Ooh, that sounded like an Ergen Canton. He repented, and God relented. Because of his character, his nature, his mercy that flows naturally from who he is. And you see that being uh, expressed here with Moses. Moses didn't do anything wrong. Yet he was humble before God and pleaded with God, interceded with God on their behalf. And God relented because of that. I think the let me alone was a subtle move of providence by God to Moses so that Moses wouldn't leave him alone would do the work of a broken intercessor and then God would display His mercy by not destroying them. The fact of the matter is, we'll see later, God does judge them. we get to the end of the chapter, there is judgment. There is a lot of death that goes on because of this incident. But He doesn't wipe them all out. He exacts a penalty for it, but does not wipe them out. There, it's, it's judgment tempered with mercy. And it's mercy because of the pleading by Moses as covenant intercessor. We've been studying First John on Wednesday nights. <clears throat> one of my all-time go-to verses is in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, I write these things to you, little children, uh, so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins... We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I, I um, what, what would the, uh, our intercessor, what would our advocate say to the Father? What's he going to say? He's done all this work. He's done all this suffering. He's done all this incredible gracious act of the cross and I've blown it again. I've shamed him. Right? What is he going to argue to the Father? It's not about me. It's based on who he is and what he's done. I don't pretend uh, to say this is a word-for-word -word comparison with the intercession of Moses, but turn to John 17. I think the themes that Moses hits on in his prayer to God, his intercession to God, are in Christ's intercessory prayer of John 17. It's a little long. I don't know it will read the whole thing. I really want to, and I may just give in to the temptation. But as I read it, yes, I'm going to give in to the temptation. As I read it, listen for the themes. You chose them. What's the world going to say? 
remember your promise. Right? Those are the themes. When Jesus had spoken these words, this is at the Last Supper. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Why? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There's a promise. You've given me these people. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, promise. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Promise. Yours they were. They're yours. And you gave them to me. Promise. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Promise. For they are yours. They're yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Now listen to this. Why would he pray this? The one who keeps the universe together by the word of his power, who has kept his people, is praying this on the eve of the cross. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Why would he say keep them? There's some sense, and I don't understand this, but there's some sense that Christ is humanity... He's keeping them together because he's God. But there's some sense in humanity. He's knowing he's going to the cross. And he knows what that entails more than we ever will. The, the, the separated second person of the Trinity on the cross. What's going to happen to them? I, I may not, will I, be able to keep them? I'll give them to the Father. And I'll trust Him that they will be kept. Do you see? It, I, don't, I don't know how that works. There's problems in that statement. But what's going on here? There's a trusting of the natures of, of the Father to keep His people while He's going to the cross. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart. In the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, there's the advocate part, I consecrate myself. There's the ego argument. Myself. Who is he? There's the pathos argument. I'm your son. And they that they also may be sanctified in truth. There's a, there's a logical argument. Because I'm doing this, that they may be sanctified. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? What's Egypt going to say if you don't keep them? What's the world going to say about what I've done if you don't keep them, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he goes on, and there are others. And he says it again in verse 23. Uh, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I see the same themes 
that Moses pleads with God on the mountain in the prayer of Christ for you now. Not based on who I am. Not based on what I do. Not based on what you do. Not based on the failure again and again of being stiff-necked in a certain thing. But based upon they're yours. You've promised them to me. You've promised to sanctify them in the word. Your word is truth. So that the world may know of me. You see that again and again throughout this prayer. If God relented for the sake of His choosing Israel, how much more is His compassion moved for those He has chosen in His Son? If God relented for the sake of His name among the Egyptians, how much more is His resolve to make much of His Son and the effectiveness of the cross in the whole world known to the whole world and to all the heavenly powers? If God relented for the sake of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how much more is his faithfulness to uphold and sustain the faith of, the continued sanctification of, the final glorification of, the gift of a people he set apart for his son before the foundation of the world? How much more will he relent and show compassion and be moved to keep, protect, uphold, forgive you? How much more? If perchance we do sin, we have an intercessor with the Father. We have only one. We need only one. Jesus Christ the righteous, broken, humbled, even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Because of Him, because of His humility, God's nature reacts, responds in a way of compassion. That's pretty comforting to me. I hope it is to you. Any comments, any questions? It's just 10.08. I mean, I've got at least three seconds. No. Yeah? Um, I just like the parallel that you brought up with uh, Jesus humbling himself, just as Moses humbles himself in front of God, saying, your people, mm-hmm. and it's not about me and you know you having me deliver them out of life. Mm-hmm. Me coming to save them, it's right. all for your glory. Right. I want them, and Jesus saying here, basically, I want them and the people that I've told about you mm-hmm. to go and tell more people about mm-hmm. you. But I want them to know that it came from you and not just from me. Right. That you sent me. Right. Jesus. And so, I don't know, I just think it's really cool that Moses is kind of a representative of that. He's, he's a, uh, an, a type, right. as a, the, smart, the smart folks would say, a type of, of, uh, of Christ. I'm not saying that the non-smart folks wouldn't say that, but I mean... I, that's the language that they give us to use sometimes. Yeah, you're right. He is, he's, he's anticipating the humility of Jesus in his intercessory work for us. Anything else? I thought it was a really interesting uh, the illustration of the people on the bottom of the mountain, whether they were saved or not. Um, it just showed a good illustration of how selfish we are as people, mm-hmm. whether you know, we are promises or promises. Uh, even in small instances, you know, I mean, the riches of his mercy and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's mm-hmm. the way that the author of Ephesians, well, Paul says in Ephesians. There's patience too. Exactly. I think of I think of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Mm-hmm. Well, he he did bring judgment and fire on them, but Abraham interceded and said, "Well, if you find fifty, and he just kept going, and yeah, God didn't relent. That his that was not his purpose, mm-hmm. but he he said, okay, well, there weren't that many people, right? After all, but he, but even he the should, ones that were there." Lot and his family, three people. He's, Moses stopped at ten. Not Moses. Abraham stopped at ten. And then God said, There aren't any. 
and he just stopped praying there. If he'd have kept going down to one, who knows? I mean, that's yeah. speculation. But of the ones under ten that were there, God still saved them. Mm-hmm. So it shows a, a, a profound mercy on... It wasn't like Lot had innocent hands there either. Yeah, but God, God, he was protected because of the intercession of Abraham. In God's character, yeah. Anything else? Okay, well, the mind can absorb only what the behind can endure, so I will pray. We've been here a while, so. Father, I have no, um, no words for the majesty of being able to peek into the Holy of Holies and read that prayer of Christ. We should go there often. Because in that prayer we see the beauty of His work for us. Not only living the life that we should have lived, not only dying the death that we should have died, but His on going work of interceding for His people, of loving them, pleading for them, entreating you based on your nature, your character, and the promises that you've made to redeem a people for yourself as a gift to your Son. Who can fathom these things? And as I struggle in the depths of my own heart with with my own breaches of your covenant. I am thankful and I rest in the fact that I have a high priest who intercedes not based upon me but based upon you and the depth of your compassion for those who are yours whom you've promised so that the world may know that you are God and that you have sent Christ Father, make us faithful. Grow us up in obedience and trust and dependence upon you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.